This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. Good evening, everybody. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and we've got a jam-packed show today about flying or not flying, saving the planet or not saving the planet. It's all up to us. We're talking about flying tonight, and we're talking about why we have failed to address climate change. Can there be a connection? We've got Jane on the panel, who has been doing heroic work, Ronnie behind her, who's also been doing heroic work, because we're going to do our first Skype interview tonight. We've also got psychologist Lynn Bender in in the studio and she's written an article called Bargaining with the Climate Devils in Paris and then later Robert Mann with a phone interview about his article Diabolical which was published in the December-January monthly. Um, Now I can actually see Michael, this is the first time Michael we've ever done this so good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, or good evening to you. I can't a couple you of hours that. ahead here in New uh, Zealand. Michael Hall is a professor at Canter- Canterbury University in New Zealand, and he's with us by Skype. Um, he's a professor of tourism, and he's a researcher of high repute. He won the LCLVA Prize for Great Thinking in Social Sciences, and his article in The Conversation caught my eye. It's called Guilt-Free Tourism. Would you pay $11 for a carbon-neutral holiday? So welcome, Michael. Thank you very much. The lovely to hear from you. To start on a personal note, your PhD was in wilderness research, and I bet you're a great traveller. Um, what was your most glorious trip? Well, my, my PhD, I'm actually Australian. My, I'm, a, I'm a political refugee from the current government here in New Zealand. Um, my PhD was uh, on wilderness, you say, and I guess my really interesting at the time, um, the southwest wilderness in Tasmania. Um, but I've always had a hankering for um, temperate rainforest of any description. So British Columbia has always been very exciting for me. But, I mean, these days, I mean, I must admit, I only ever travel uh, for work. If it's for leisure, um, I don't travel. And uh, try and do my bit to minimise emissions because it's always an issue. If you work in this area, people ask you, where, you know, can you be so hypocritical as to go travelling? Yeah, and and I mean, you know, so for me, for me these days, if it's work, then I travel. If I don't, then I'm happy to just travel locally. But I think one of the interesting things I find, and I always find it a bit ridiculous, but it's something I think some some the listeners might relate to a bit, is that I find it astounding that I get asked to talk about sustainable tourism at conferences or around the world, and people want to see you live. you know, if you're on Skype or you're doing some video connection, it's often not enough, and they still want to see you live. And it's one of those things you often hear saying that video conferencing is going to replace, um, you know, real travel, and that it will lead to a downturn in emissions. But I'm not so sure. No. Well, look, I'm enchanted to actually see you. This is the first time I've actually done a Skype interview myself, and just to see you with us in the studio, it's wonderful. And I love travelling myself. I visited the Amazon years ago. Everyone's heard about this. I put my it put my life on a whole new path, and I think that led to me focusing on climate now and doing this radio show. 
but I didn't fly again for 30 years and and so I tell this to people and I am really not well received about that. Recently I went to Yeah, I, oh, sorry, I wanted I, can, I just I tell you understand I, that. I went to Laos and then I loved it so much I thought I would love to go back there I'd love to get back to the Mekong but unless I can get there without flying could you tell me what are the alternatives for people like us who do love well, traveling that's one of the interesting things living in Australia and New Zealand I think the alternative I think there's a couple alternatives really I mean one is to see your own country first um, some people can can also embrace the world vicariously. But interestingly, I think more often these days people people can't. I think the thing is, if it's fine to travel. The problem is how far, how fast we travel, and also whether the polluter pays. I think that if you if you're paying your offsets, it's not it's not perfect, but at least you're doing your bit. And I think what's also really important is to think about not travel in isolation, but as travel as part of your wider lifestyle, are you able to keep your wider lifestyle as low carbon as possible? Um, and it, that way you may be able to still go for that, that trip, you know, every so often and do it and you're doing fine. Well, look, I, 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 don't, I, I think that increasingly for long, long haul travel, the issue is the polluter needs to pay. And if you're going to go traveling, you should be paying. Well, I don't really agree with you that. I don't think it's right. I know it's crunch time now for climate, isn't it? We've all been talking about this window of opportunity to turn it round in every way. And I go to rallies where people are all, you know, stop, stop that coal mine, keep the coal in the ground, keep the oil in the ground and all of that. But the torch needs to be shown, uh, shone also on us. And I don't think it's really right that people like us can actually travel around with, you know, very cheap tickets. It seems very democratic, but people like us are flying around. We are actually an elite and there's billions of people who will never see inside an aeroplane. And for them, we are destroying the climate safety that, that every one of us needs. I mean, I, I, think that, I think the thing is, you know, travel is elite in the sense you have to be money-rich and time-rich to be able to travel in a global sense, although I realise not many Australians or New Zealanders would think that these days with the low cost of travel. I mean, the, the problem really is, you know, we, we're not paying the real cost of what we consume. And that, that applies to travel, it applies to food, and that includes carbon and water costs as well. If, if that were to happen and the real cost of travel were being paid for, uh, an offsetting was taking place, we'd be in a much, much better place to be able to go traveling. I mean, the problem isn't, isn't travel per se. You can go traveling. It's how you travel. Yes. It's how you travel but, that's the problem. But I've read that shipping is just as bad as uh, planes, and in the agreement at Paris they didn't cover anything to do with aviation fuel or shipping fuel. And it seems to me the signal needs to be given that this S industry cannot expand as it is set to do. Yeah, that was an interesting one. The it, it was in the shipping and aviation was in the draft agreement until early October. Uh, then it got taken out, and it was never quite clear why. Um, one reason could be because the document was so big, they really need to had to cut some things down to so as to get some kind of agreement. That's that would be the most generous interpretation. Uh, probably the more realistic interpretation was that that was done. It kept certain national as well as industry interests happy, um, and so therefore it wasn't included. Now that's not to say that 
um, shipping and aviation aren't doing anything. The problem is that what is being proposed and what is happening is not keeping up with the actual growth of those of those sectors, and that's yes. the problem. Yes, and in your article, you said that you know tourism accounts for five percent of the world's emissions, and it's set to grow, and it needs to cut back by seventy percent. And I'd like to know what strategies do you propose to decarbonize the aviation part? Let's just stick to aviation for the moment. Well, in terms of aviation, there's there's a number of things. I mean, um, what the industry is already doing, to give them credit, and it's, it's actually being discussed at uh, meetings soon, is looking at technological advances that will make it make aviation more fuel efficient. I mean, so that, that is being looked at. The other, other things that can be done is in terms of in, increased offsetting. Um, and in fact, if it were possible, which is very hard to do, to make offsetting compulsory so that the, you know, in, the cost of emissions was being paid, being paid for. That is one of the things that really does need to be advanced in terms of the, of the industry. The other thing that can be done is, okay, you can still go traveling internationally, but the issue is don't go traveling so far. I mean, you know, the emission saving for argument's sake for flying from, say, Australia to Singapore versus Australia to Europe are very, very substantial. Um, so changing the nature of the markets, which tourism industry is trying to attract, um, can actually be very, very significant in terms of the industry. So you can still have as many tourists coming and potentially paying as much to come to Australia but if they come from a closer location, then you're, you're in essence, you're cutting your emissions. Right. Well, um, when, when I was in uh, Laos, I did notice in the papers and in the Thai papers that they were proposing a high-speed rail from somewhere in China right through Laos, right through Thailand and right down the, to Singapore. So that's, you know, perhaps what countries there are thinking of, you know, to facilitate that. But I, I think... I still, I'm not very convinced, really, that that this is that we still can all just travel, as you're saying. I, I think there has to be. No, some no, sort I'm of not. Look, I'm not saying we can go travelling, as we're saying. Yeah. The problem is, is the modifying how is, we do it. Is that because of the of the way aviation was established under international conventions? It ex, it is extremely hard to put a tax on aviation. Yeah. That is the problem. That is the problem because of the way aviation was set up under international conventions. It is extremely hard to do. It can be done domestically. It can be very hard to do internationally. And when it's been attempted, there has been enormous trade conflict. Now, you know, that ideally is what should be done. But the reality of doing that is extremely hard. So you're then looking for voluntary um, behavior yes and the reality is that most people don't give a stuff <laughs> well we've Even, got we've got to I say mean, no, that, that, that's, that, <laughs> that's the reality that's the reality only about three or four percent of people bother offsetting yeah well look we've got a psychologist most people do not care we've got a, one of our friends of beyond zero emissions is lynn bender she's a psychologist with us and if we can't get a top-down change in the tourist industry maybe <clears throat> we can get more people giving us stuff from the bottom but i explored with her would like her to explain what are the reasons people don't you know they they just do not want to change that behavior it is quite a recent behavior in historical terms isn't it our grandparents didn't go on many overseas trips at all but nowadays but 
Pepsi, but, 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 but that was because of technology it and was. cost. It was. We now have we now have the technology. It's now quite cheap. Yeah. And look, and the reality is that when it there's no, it's often positive attitudes in terms of the environment and climate change. But yet, to convert those attitudes, behaviour is very, very hard. It, it, and you know, most people do not want to pay more. Okay, could Lynn, Lynn say something to you now? She's yes. dying to say something. Hi. Well, I think what's happening, I, I feel you're in a very masculine mode, you, you may like that, which is the solving of the problem confused with what we actually have to do. So we say, oh, we'll never change that. We can put, we have to try and use market forces. But one of the things we're coming up against is we actually have to go to zero emissions and we have to do it very fast. Now, Facing that big problem is very depressing because people have built their lives around being able to travel. They have lovers overseas. They have family overseas. They take jobs for six months. We have that sense of entitlement to that. It's really that we have to start shifting our entire view of how we're going to live. Now, that's pretty tough. I mean, uh, you hear people like Naomi Klein saying it has to, everything has to change. She made a apology for flying and so did George Marshall when I recently saw him on tour they justified well we may be doing more to save emissions by doing this but it really means a lot of people who built their lives around it people in towns that want tourists we even used to argue and we still do don't destroy the Franklin River. It'll be, will, it'll make a lot of money as a tourist attraction. So we've, we've switched environmentalism to profit. Um, and we're always kind of worrying about how we can do it economically, which of course makes a lot of sense. But it's, it's not helpful in some instances like this. So, um, what are we going to do? We have to shift our idea of travel as consolation, travel as a right, travel as a necessity. Conferences are a whole industry in various professional circles. Okay, Michael, your turn. Well, I'll let my feminine side out, given I'm meant to be being masculine at the moment. <laughs> um, I mean, look, I, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I go around talking about degrowth and talking about the problems of behavioural change and the, the need for interventions. The problem is, look, I, I have no problem with, I agree completely with what you're saying. The problem is, whether we like it or not, is that in, in short policy terms, which we're stuck with, unfortunately, behavioural change doesn't, make, doesn't get very far unless you can, put, you can put it in an economic language. And I think, I mean, you, and you may disagree with that, but if I'm talking to aviation industry or I'm, or I'm talking to policymakers, yes, they want to know the cost. Because that becomes part of how they also have to sell the behavioural change. So, you know, I, I look, I'm no great fan of market forces. I think Naomi Klein's wonderful. And I, I, most of my stuff's written with the same image as she has. But in terms of the policy debate, unfortunately, in the short term, we, ha we have to have an economic debate. And I think what actually needs to happen is all, almost at two different levels. At one level, you have the economic debate. At another level, you have the behavioral debate and a, a wider debate about well-being and consumption. Um, but that is a much longer debate in terms of lifestyle change and being able to achieve it. And the problem that we, we have is that time is running out. 
That's right. Well, thank you, Michael. We're nearly up to the end of the time, but I think we've broached a subject that I feel has been quite taboo. I, for example, can't mention this to my young adult children or my older retired friends who all want to go travelling as much as possible and by as quick as possible too and not modified, as you say, by going perhaps by a, a ship from here to there or train from here to there. They just want to fly there and have the holiday and come back. And I'm really pleased that you've broached it with us because I don't think many people really are happy talking about this yet and we do, do need to get the ball rolling on it because as I think uh, George Mombio said the growth of aviation and the need to address climate change just can't be reconciled so you know if it's going I mean, to grow I, I, I would agree I, I would agree fabulous respond to that yeah. I, mean, I, I would agree with you completely but I, I think if we're looking at where it comes from, then we, and I'm sure Lynn will have a discussion about this, we need to look about the forces which shape our consumptive behaviour. And then that gets us back to advertising. It gets back to the extent to which travel and um, other places is just – and. It, it's just part of the media. It's part yes. of TV. It's part yes. of radio. It's part of this discussion yes. in one sense. Yes. I'm talking to you from from New Zealand, and we we take that almost that you know global globalization has been instantaneous, and we hear it, we can see it, and we we feel we can access it. Yeah. And that is a really really strong tension in terms of what we see and understand and how the globe affects us and how we behave. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much for giving us time today, Michael, and really lovely to meet you. I feel I have met you now looking at your face there on the uh, screen. So <laughs> thank you for talking to us. That was Professor Michael Paul. Thank you. He's a professor of tourism uh, from Canterbury University in New Zealand. And now after a short break, we're going to have um, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann from La Trobe University talking about his article, Diabolical. If you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active, and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. Welcome back, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and you're on 3CR. Now, I have convened tonight's radio think tank with two deep thinkers on climate action, and they are both warriors. Robert Mann is Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University, and he wrote an article in the December monthly magazine asking, why have we failed to address climate change? So this is really a big uh, approach. It's called Diabolical. And we've still got Lynn Bender with us in the studio. And as a psychologist, she will help us deal with some of the pain around knowing that the Paris deal is not enough. So starting with you, Robert, um, are you there? I am. Oh, very nice to hear your voice. Um, I'd like to start about the sociologists being left out idea. You said that science, oh, we've all known that scientists have been the ones most invited to comment on climate change and they've guided our understanding of it so far. But your article really outlines 
that there have been thinkers who've devoted their lifetime more from the social science perspective um, to dealing with climate change and how we literally how we'll deal with it the political reality of dealing with it some said it's a wicked problem others says say we're faced with the tragedy of the commons but I'd like to know do you think it's time for the IPCC to bring these people in from the sidelines well yes I think they should um you know the IPCC, you know, is a compend, you know, a brilliant sort of compendium of what science understands about many, many questions. But I think as important as what the science understands about global warming is the question of why human societies, nation states, and the international community and individuals haven't responded to what any rational person now realizes is, I think, the biggest threat human beings have ever faced. Robert, just so before you go on, before you go on, could you speak closer to the phone and a bit louder because it'll be easier sure. for the listeners to hear you? Yes, of course. Anyhow, so I, I do think that um, there should be some equivalent maybe to the IPCC where research on in the social sciences and psychology and international relations is brought together. It'd be much harder because as we, all of those who've studied in those areas will understand um, consensus is much more difficult to achieve, but even to have the arguments um, somewhere and to see the contrast between the different approaches I think might be very helpful. So I, w- I, would, I would think there's some room now to allow the um, social sciences and you know, similar disciplines to come into the you know, what is the most crucial debate human beings have ever had to have. Yes. And does do you think it depends on the IPCC to organise that, or do you think these conferences are going to start to group themselves? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the IPCC it relies on um, international consensus. You know, their reports are based on um, putting scientific work together, but nations having to come and agree to it, and it would be very hard, I suppose, to get agreement on some of the social science oh, yes. questions. But I think, I think there should be major initiatives, at least, to put the research together. In a way, that's what I was trying to do in a small way in the article, which is to show how different disciplines um, have tried to understand the gridlock and the lack of action, yes. which has and been so important in the last um, you know, 40 years or so. Yes, and I think it was a very good article from that point of view, showing just how much work has been done. But one of the ideas that came out for me that was a kind of a actionable idea was about having a climate club. And uh, many people are happy, I think, that the at least 179 nations gathered at Paris and agreed to decarbonise. But I think... We don't need the 179 all the time. We just need a small group, like a climate club of the people who are involved in certain sectors. And I was thinking of, for example, the coal exporting countries. It's only a handful of countries that really export coal. They could get together and agree to have a moratorium. So no one would be disadvantaged, but they would impose the moratorium and Beyond Zero Emissions published a paper on that idea. So how would such a club work? Well, there are many ideas. I mean, the the idea that um, has been most worked out is a fellow called David Victor, who's rather on the conservative side of politics, I would think, reading his work. But it would. I think the idea is that there are fifteen or twenty nations um, who are primarily and 
overwhelmingly responsible for emissions, and they would have to develop um, schemes of cooperation, both in, in research and in action, and they would have to reward each other for the action taken to rap, you know, rapidly cut emissions, and they'd have to in some ways punish by trade sanctions of some sort or another the countries that refuse to uh, take any action. And it's a radical idea in a way, and it is quite unlike the what's dominated international discussion, which is um, the idea of all nations getting together through the umbrella of the United Nations and uh, t trying to become a common scheme. And the Climate Club is a new idea, and I don't know whether it'll catch on. And I, I, I think in practical terms, we're sort of stuck now with the UN idea and the idea of a general international consensus. And all our hopes are now placed on Paris and the pledge and review system. And perhaps we could talk about that, but um, the Climate Club is uh, an idea whose time has not yet come. And it may be too late, in fact, for something as radical as that to... Uh, overtake the sort of consensus which we've had with the UN for a very long time. Well, I hope not, because I think it will be easier to organise than to organise uh, those massive conferences with everybody there. You know, it's it's the, the yes, climate emitters the, who need to talk know, Turkey, isn't it? You have to have both. Um, yes. You probably need the... the um, you can't get away from placing no, no. present hopes mm. on Paris, but... You know, you could develop um, in, you know, alongside and in parallel uh, groups of nations taking action um, of, of a radical kind right. and trying to, um, as it were, impose their views on the recalcitrant nations by mm. trade activity. Now, Robert, we've got Lynn Bender with us in the uh, studio and she wrote an article called Bargaining with the Climate Devils and I'd just like to ask her a question and then she might like to continue talking with you, with me. Um, um, Lynn, you said that uh, at Paris they bargained away Africa, the Pacific Islands, Bangladesh and many species. That seems extreme. Yes, well, the actual pledges don't amount to 1.5 degrees of warming. They amount to much higher than that. And, of course, we don't even know if they'll, they'll go to that level. And, the, and, co and, you know, the previous consensus was two degrees where that really did mean all of those things and we didn't seem to care. So I think one of our problems is, is call it the tragedy of the commons, but we really um, are self-worried. Self we worry about our what's going to happen to us. Mm. And so... For us, it's like, well, there's always been famines in the third world. There's always been drought. They die by the millions. But what's going to happen to our superannuation and what's going to happen to our lives? That's what has dominated us for so long. We haven't really recognised that we're all in this together, actually. And, we're, and they may be going first, but it's going to impact us very strongly. It's a very colonial idea that um, we still sacrifice them for us. And uh, so the poor countries, the poor people are the ones who've contributed least and suffer the most. So I feel, um, I know I'm an individual psychologist. We're very, we're in, and paradoxically, we're too individualistic because we don't think collectively and we, we find it very hard to think about um, other generations or even people who are contemporary, even, even people in a neighbouring island in the Pacific. But we do have to think more that way because it's our survival. And um, it is our survival. And I think that people need to learn that, that 
um, the way they do in therapy. They have to learn about the consequences of all their actions. The other, the other reality is we've tried not to scare the horses. I know a lot of psychology has been about, oh, don't, don't sound alarmist because, you know, don't talk about Armageddon. And I think we've let the horses just snooze. And people aren't alarmed, so we don't react unless we think we're threatened. That's another one of our psychological mechanisms. We don't react unless it feels immediate. Stephen Lewandowski, who's done quite a lot of research on cognition and climate change denial or failure to act, says we respond to anecdotes. So there's actually been research that says if you hear about climate change and there's a dead plant in the room, you're more likely to believe it. If there's three dead plants, you're more likely then to be more concerned. If there's some lush foliage, you feel a bit better. So I think also we as a species, um, as animals really, are, are, are geared to... Oh, this is all right. We've got food today. We've got water today. The taps, the supermarkets are full. The taps are flowing. And we don't think about um, the fact that we're at risk because we feel safe in mm. that environment. Well, um, Robert, would you like to comment about that or about the alarmism idea, like how we should yeah. represent climate change? Have we been asleep at the wheel, really, not, not wanting to frighten the horses? Yeah, I, I completely agree with Ben's idea there. Uh, and actually, a lot of empirical studies recommend not um, using the language of apocalypse or Armageddon because, precisely because people are put off by that. But that, of course, leads to the fundamental paradox, which is you're faced with a, a, a situation of extreme long-term danger, which requires fundamental shift in people's ways of living and thinking and I think uh, the acknowledgement that kind of feast we now have of consumerism is probably incompatible with the planet um, and how do you get people to, to go through revolutionary shift of thinking if you have to speak in a soft <laughs> comforting yeah. voice about it and to speak <laughs> truthfully about the dangers we face is meant to be off-putting. So it's a, it's a terrible problem. And that's one part of what I've written about is the you know, many, many psychological studies done you know, very um, methodologically carefully have shown that um, it's, you know, to, to really uh, confront people with danger when they can't see it, when it's not a bushfire coming towards them or you know, mm -hmm. terrorism, um, uh, puts them off and makes them, as it were, go back to sleep. So, it, uh, you know, it is a very big problem that somehow we have to confront. Well, uh, alarmism is an idea. You know, uh, leaders and the media arouse a collective feeling. I want them to, I would like to see them arouse a collective feeling of unity around climate change action. And um, religious people used to say, you know, the end is nigh, but now we've even got the Pope coming out with very practical comments saying, well, it really is nigh, and uh, doomsday predictions can no longer be met with irony or disdain. That's the Pope. And I'd like yeah. to know what you'd like to see the media do. I, I, I have a feeling you're being very quietly spoken and measured with us. I think you'd probably like to shake the media, wouldn't you? Because they are not, they haven't, they've lulled us. They were the main teachers of our knowledge about this new subject. It's, uh, I, I want to shake them. What do you feel? Well, um, I've, you know, one of my other interests has been the uh, obsession 
obscenity, really, of um, the power that Rupert Murdoch has in the newspaper world here, <laughs> increasingly, to some extent in television, um, as a climate change denier. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I wish the media would um, see the, the reality of what we confront uh, and deal with it. Uh, and it's difficult for the media because the media that, that I you know, uh, am aware of uh, has to interest people and it's commercially driven and it has to get an audience. And in a way, the story of climate change um, is not that interesting. It's, it's a disaster, but you have to go on saying the same thing. Uh, it's not true that the media isn't able to create alarm. I mean, there is a lot of alarm about terrorism. 9-11 really did change the world in many ways, unfortunately, um, and led to wars and so on and a complete shift in all sorts of behaviour. So it's not as if the media is incapable of creating alarm, but there's something about the climate change issue and perhaps about the vested interests, or not perhaps, certainly about the vested mm -hmm. interests that have a lot to lose if we do take action. That means the media has been um, impoverished, poor. And in the case of um, much of the uh, Murdoch media, or all of the Murdoch media, it has been a force for wickedness. It has been closing our eyes um, to the problem. In Australia, um, the newspaper world is dominated uh, now by um, the idea that any really radical action, and for Australia's sake, it would have to be with coal, to by far our most, our most important contribution to the global problem. That would be met with howls of anger and derision if anything seriously was confronted. So the media is a major, major problem. Right, Lynn, do you have some comments about the media? Well, certainly. Um, having a bit of experience in writing for the media now, I know even when the progressives, you have to have an angle, you have to have a slant. It may not be the way you want to write it, you may not want that emphasis, but um, it has to go in. Or A, you won't get published, and B, they don't believe they'll be read. So there is a bias, of course. I mean, my concern also is our leading spokespeople, um, George Marshall talks about the credibility of someone who's portraying the issue. And if we have trust in that person, we're more likely to take notice of them. So um, I think there's plenty of people who have credibility, who some of them are speaking out, but more of them should. Because the, the ironic example is that most of us are going on with business as usual. That um, what Al Gore spoke of as we cannot just go on with business as usual is exactly what we're all doing and I think um, part of the reason um, I think the media is in the grip of the same psychological process as we all are of defend defending against the un unbelievably horrible do we do we cope with the thought of our own death let alone the death of the planet as we know it and I think Clive Hamilton who's not even a psychologist um, has done more than our our, our, my own peak body in speaking up about the grief, the enormous grief that follows that recognition of um, what, we st what we are going to lose anyway now with what's in the pipeline and how we're going to have to change. And a lot of what we lose is our dream, our dream of endless abundance, our dream of buying that beautiful house by the sea and leaving it to our grandchildren as the sea level rises. Um, and, you know, 
all our sort of uh, defences, oh, I'll go to Bali for a nice holiday. Well, um, that's partly destroying the planet. And our sense of continuity, um, what's the point of our work? It's a very existential issue. Um, and it, it goes to the very meaning of our lives. What are we leaving behind? What are we doing this for? Um, is there worth in what we're doing right now? And in my profession, for example, a lot of what we do is help people go adjust to what is. We don't really, it's not really a social changing profession, though there are some renegades. Uh, it's more, oh, this is what's happened, right. We'll give you a little bit of CBT and change how you look at it. There, that's better. Um, and that's not really helpful for what we have to do, which is shift our paradigm really strongly. And I suspect it's if we all start yelling the truth, speaking the truth, speaking it softly. You have a lovely voice, Robert, and um, I'm more likely to listen to you than someone yelling at me. But um, I think we do all need to make it very important. The way terrorism gets a rap all the time. Um, and uh, I know when there was a drought in Melbourne, there were announcements, this was a few years ago, one of the severe droughts, about how full the dams were. And that helped us accept um, water restrictions. And why aren't we talking about the dams now? Because we're in drought now. All of these things. But, but because the vested interests are tied with, okay, we don't want to scare the horses. We want people to still travel. We want people to still, um, you know, when there were fires um, recently on the Ocean Road, we want to open those roads up as quick as possible because people's livelihoods depend on it. And... Um, you know, that's the kind of way we're thinking and we're not thinking, oh, how's the planet going to live? How are we going to ensure the planet survives? And of course we have to survive in that planet. But it, it is, a, I think, probably a wicked problem is quite a good description. Okay, well, back to you, Robert. Oh, we've, we've talked about behavioural change. I, I don't think any of us seem to really know how you would throw the levers to people into survival mode, which I also, also think there is a good story in that. I mean, I always like the, the Second World War, mm. you know, people being blitzed and being brave and having mm. rations. And I, I like that scenario mm. where people pull in the belt for the common good. And it's, a, it's mm. part of all our mythology, isn't it, of Britain and, and yeah. various countries in wartime. We, we like to think of ourselves as being brave and caring about our neighbours, even though perhaps the reality might be a bit more like Foyle's War. But, you know, I, I, I think behavioural change, someone's got to throw the switch and use a different sort of rhetoric. But I'd like to focus on something that both of you, I think, have know a fair bit about, which is climate denial. And you've written a lot about it. Um, I'd like you to talk about the big level uh, climate denial, Robert, you know, where millions of dollars have been spent. And you say the denialists have done a brilliant job at polarising opinion. And I think we've all lived through that, haven't we, where we climate change wasn't a very political subject at all. And now it's become highly political. But um, why is it so easy to get voters who are, you mentioned this in your article, there's kind of clusters. They, they might be opposed to equal marriage or abortion or gun control. Why are those people who cluster around those issues automatically voting against climate action? And more importantly, how can we decouple climate from those issues so that we can see like farmers and miners and trade unionists and self-funded retirees all demanding the climate action we need? Yeah, well, it's a complicated question or series of questions. Yeah. Um, 
And climate denial is not, you know, let's just take the wealthy countries, the OECD countries. Climate denial hardly exists um, in Europe uh, and, as far as I know, in Japan. It, it exists mainly in the Anglosphere, uh, in Australia, obviously, um, if we live here, but in the United States is the centre of it, and to some extent it's been powerful in Canada and Great Britain. Um, it was a conscious political movement which began at the time when the, the climate scientists and the international community was beginning to be aroused by the problem. And at first, it was dominated by um, the massive corporations, particularly fossil fuel, but also manufacturing mm. corporations that had a lot to lose if serious action was taken. Now, I think the centre of denial um, are the think tanks or the conservative uh, uh, sort of propaganda outfits uh, that are incredibly powerful in the United States and are reasonably powerful in uh, Britain and Australia. Um, and they have created a community of people by, by you know, decades of work whose politics are now, who, who regard the science of climate change as they regard abortion or gun control or, um, you know, in Australia, as they would regard, uh, you know, sort of, uh, issues about economic management as a purely political issue. It's an incredible achievement, wicked and, and powerful, but incredible achievement to have turned a scientific question into a political, ideological question. Um, and we now have, and this is one of the biggest problems in the world today, uh, one of the parties in the United States is almost entirely won over by political denialism, you know, the Republicans. Mm -hmm. If anyone follows the Republican debate, they would know that if a candidate um, for the Republican nomination were to say the world is in crisis because of climate change, which is a far greater problem, let's say, than terrorism, they would be they would be laughed at. They would be finished. Fox News would pull them apart. And that and, and uh, the I think the, the the best theory of it comes from a fellow called Dan Kahn. Um, he calls it cultural cognition. It's a, it's a it's a simple idea, but I think an elegant and, and persuasive idea. And it is that on scientific questions, um, people know they can't make the decisions of what's right or wrong. Uh, because they're not scientists. So they look to see whether there's contention within the, the kind of people that they respect. And if they find there are a, a few scientists, uh, many commentators, uh, and the political party they trust in denial, they will be in denial. They'll simply, as it were, allow the people they normally, uh, their tribe, to create their opinions for them. And so we have, in the case of the United States, huge discrepancy in opinion between uh, Republicans and Democrats uh, because uh, the Republicans' cultural cognition is that they trust Fox News, Glenn Beck, uh, yeah, um, Donald Trump or whatever, uh, and those are the people, and, and there are one or two scientists um, who are trotted out enormously and who make money from it who tell them that there's, a, there's a, a, a war of science and that science is undecided and so on. 
Anyhow, it's an extraordinary yeah. political achievement. Yeah. I was going to just quickly, Robert, do you think uh, the American election or even our coming election will be have climate change or climate action as a central policy area to be discussed? Well, in, in America, the... I mean, I, I think Bernie Sanders is a, is a fine man and he is... He mm. thinks like I do about the issue, and if, insofar as he remains in the debate, he will make it an issue. And I think Hillary Clinton, much more moderately, will make it an issue. Yeah. I doubt, to be honest, whether when it comes to the final battle between the two candidates, that will be much of an issue, because I think the Democrat candidate, unless it's Sanders, will fear that the issue might uh, um, harm them. Yeah. Obama was very quiet. Obama really believes in the uh, importance of climate change as much as anyone. Mm. And yet he went completely silent after in 2012. Yeah. Because he thought it would do him harm you know, because the Republicans would use it. So I suspect uh, something like that will happen unless. Bernie Sanders is the candidate, which mm. is a little bit unlikely. Yeah, it's such a circus there. I can't bear to watch it, really. But I'd like to move now to Lynn with the other sort of denial. Robert's talked about that big-scale, mm. well-funded, mm. you know, deliberate denial. But there's another kind of everyday sort of denial that people who know but don't want to know, people who mm. might go to the climate rally and say stop the coal mine and keep the oil in the ground, but... They do not want to stop flying on their next holiday, for example, mm. or many other lifestyle things, the behavioural change that would start to hurt them. Can you talk about that denial, yes. how that works? Well, first of all, I just wanted to add to what Robert said, mm. the um, brilliant work Naomi Oreskes did of charting, planting the seeds of doubt, which is um, has been so powerful in the tobacco industry, for example, mm. so that people um, accept that, oh, the science is in doubt. And uh, that's that's a very deliberate policy of the tobacco companies. Mm. And the same scientists who were involved in that mm. became involved in the climate change planting of doubt. I think um, people live on a sort of split screen. They don't join the dots. Oh, I'm worried about climate change. Oh, I feel terrible. I'm really looking forward to my holiday. Um, and so, and there's another kind of denial where people feel helpless, impotent. What can one person do? Mm. What does it matter? What if I don't drive my car, everyone else is driving it? And um, I think that's very powerful too. So I suppose I believe grassroots movements are very important psychologically because you surround yourself with others who are going to support you in changes in behaviour. And if they gather momentum and and uh, people start to see life can have a, a quality that's different but very rich in some ways if we reduce. Mm. Um, and that we have... We, we, we have actually lost a lot in our consumer society. So, you know, the, 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 the promotion of happiness through consumption has failed, really. We're very unhappy. We're very anxious... We're very um, troubled about what is the meaning of our lives, really. Um, and so we feel a lot of us don't connect emotionally with other, other people. Our relationships may not be satisfying because consumption hasn't really helped us. And Stefan Lewandowski said that denialism was closely linked with people who believe in the free market. And the free market's really all about no constraints, Bye, bye, bye. The earth is not a constraint mm. because it doesn't matter and technology will solve the problem. So 
I think it still gets down to the talk changing, the conversation changing. And I do think the positive thing is the conversation has changed quite a lot from it's crap, as Tony Abbott was able to get away with saying to some degree, and now, oh, we're arguing about what to do about it. That's much better, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. We're on the Titanic, the iceberg's approaching, and we don't have enough lifeboats, etc. So that's our dilemma. We, we're slowly shifting, but we've got to get faster. Right, and at least acknowledging that people themselves are in a state of denial might help. Uh, Robert, I'd like to come back to the ideas, um, you know, you're a political scientist, and a lot of people like talking about the election coming up in Australia and any elections, as we talked about the Americans, I love talking about it in this very sort of micro-personality sort of way. But I don't know who votes against climate action in Australia, but polling has found that even in the Liberal and National Party electorates, I think they looked at Tony Abbott's and three others, around 75% of the voters even want 100% renewable energy and they want a global moratorium on no on new coal. So that was published by the Australia Institute or um, asked for by them. And I, I think that should, you know, influence the parties to say, let's go full steam ahead with those policies then, because that's what the electorate, even the conservatives in the electorate want. And yet they can stir up this thing of X the tax, you know, in the last election and get everyone frothed up about it and voting the other way. And I note that in your article, you said around the world, even in climate conscious Norway, no government is actually offering to constrain corporations. Yeah. And I wonder, is there something wrong with our democracy? Right. Yeah, yeah, there probably is something wrong with our democracy, although <laughs> no one, you know, we're talking about the Second World War where Churchill is probably right, but um, there's no better mm. political system. I mean, there are, obviously there are things wrong with our democracy, like the capacity of um, corporations with a lot of, lot of money to influence what happens. So there are democratic reforms that we could undertake to limit and control the amount of influence that corporations can wield. But um, I do think, I mean, I want to be a little bit hopeful now because I do think there's been a, a, a shift in opinion um, in Australia but also in the world um, over the last few years. Uh, I, I remember talking to people um, in you know, Greenpeace or whatever, say three or four years ago, and, and we were saying, how do you even get the question of Australia and its contribution to global warming via coal disgust. Now it is being discussed all the time. So sometimes consciousness uh, changes, but reasonably, not, not quickly enough to be absolutely noticeable. Uh, and I think that, you know, the, the, the politics of climate change in Australia is that those who are concerned about the issue have to make coal an absolutely central question. It's partly how we radically reduce our reliance on coal domestically, as importantly, maybe more importantly, um, how we uh, begin to uh, get rid of the, the fetish that we have to export coal to be a wealthy nation. And, you know, clearly the Turnbull government is going to be critical here. Turnbull believes in the importance of the climate change issue, uh, and that's probably why he lost the leadership last time. I think he's now um, 
he doesn't want to alienate the National Party and the Conservative part of the Liberal Party. But if he has a clear victory in the next election, I think we will see action, um, partly action to uh, begin pricing emissions again. I'm hoping even action to begin to um, get rid of our reliance domestically and in terms of exports, our reliance on coal. So I, I do think that public opinion is shifting gradually. The question will be whether it, it shifts sufficiently to, to be willing to put up with sacrifice. I think people often think that we can make the transition. Many people think we can make the transition to a, a, a non-fossil fuel economy without a loss of prosperity. Maybe we can, but I, I personally doubt it. The question will be whether we are alarmed for the future generations, and it was said before, for the Pacific Islands or for Africa or for the really impoverished or Bangladesh, whether our concern for people other than ourselves and for future generations is sufficiently vivid to us to mean that we will um, endure uh, sacrifice, put up with sacrifice, put up with the prospect of a less affluent uh, reality for us. And that's the question that only the future will tell. But there is a shift in consciousness both amongst world elites and uh, I think there's a growth in, you know, blockadia, Naomi Klein, yeah. Klein's great idea. And, and so there is hopefulness that the human spirit is sort of beginning to awaken, I think, to the gravity of what we face. Right. Well, we're nearly to the end, Robert, but uh, I'd just like to end with something that Pope Francis said, and I know you appreciated his Laudato Si document. Um, he talked about glo the globalization of indifference, and I think it's been the theme tonight that the behavioral change required of us now to survive, all of us, is to stop that indifference, to... Yeah actually open our eyes and open our hearts really it sounds corny but you know open our hearts to the the fact that we are as lynn said before all in this together it's a vital message and i don't know even if us talking on the air it sounds rather leisurely and pleasant we're all talking to each other but it seems to be we need to find that message to stop the globalized indifference would you have one more word to say and then lynn and we must finish after that yeah well it's indifference to the, the poor it's indifference to other species and it's a indifference to future generations. And that all has to be changed. Um, and it's, it's a massive moral challenge. I couldn't agree with you more than that's at the heart of it. To, it's to not think about the, the present, the wealthy countries and the human as opposed to other species. To think uh, about others and that's going to either save us or damn us. Yes. All right, thank you very much, Robert. And I think I agree entirely. And our treatment of refugees is an example of how we're indifferent to their plight. Some of them are actually, could be argued, are climate change refugees. Mm. And we need to overcome our fear as a big driver. And uh, wherever our fears sparked, we can get quite irrational. So I think we have to overcome our fear and, and start to see the challenge of it as a positive thing. And that, that requires a lot of people like you, Robert, and other influential people and the media 
changing the way they pose questions even. Okay. We'll just have to finish there. I'm so pleased we had such eminent people with us tonight. We had Professor Michael Hall from New Zealand talking about tourism and there the behavioural change needed there. Lynn Bender, the psychologist and um, Emeritus Professor Robert Mann, who wrote a marvellous article called Diabolical in this month's monthly, the December-January monthly. It's still in the shops.